This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is brought to you by Book Riot Insiders, the digital bookish resource and hangout spot for readers. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. We've got three levels to Insiders, short story, novel, and the epic level. And you can try any level out for free for two weeks. For podcast lovers, meaning you, Insiders at the novel and epic level get access to two exclusive shows, the Read Harder podcast, which gives recommendations for the Read Harder challenge task by task, and Book Riot Remixed, where we randomly pair up hosts from across our shows to talk about... Whatever they want. Insiders also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, our new release index, the Epic Book Club, and more. Sign up for your free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly non-fiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Eukera. We're recording on Saturday, August 28th. Hi, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Oh, I can't believe it's the end of August. <laughs> I know, it's bananas. When I said that, I was like, I thought it was the 16th. What? <laughs> <laughs> Time has no meaning anymore. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so we were just talking about TV shows right before recording mm-hmm. that we were watching. Uh, we are both watching Making It, which uh, yes. the season finale just aired, but we have not watched it. And so we will not give any spoilers to anyone about anything in the show in case you have not watched season three. I noticed that I couldn't find seasons one and two on streaming. Oh, is really? Oh, huh. Maybe. I, yeah. Maybe there was like a weird glitch or something, but like they, I could only see three because I, I never watched uh, two. I only saw one. Oh. You should describe what Making It is in case people don't know what we're talking about. What a great idea. Making It is a <laughs> – uh, it's basically like Great British Bake Off but with crafts. Um, and it is hosted by Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. And they basically wanted to bring the positivity of the Bake Off to America. <laughs> and so people – you have like a, a group of craft makers in a barn and they are assigned one to two tasks uh, per episode that they have to make and put their own spin on. And it's just it's just a delight. It is. I love when they do stuff where I'm like, oh, if I was good at crafting, I could make that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I love when they're like, oh, I could make this at home and you can too. And I'm like, no, I can't. <laughs> well, sometimes I'm like, I think reasonably I could. Like all of those supplies are available to me and I like could potentially make that thing. Like some of the stuff is obviously like much too complicated, but. There's a level of creativity that I'm like, I just, that's, that's, not, that's not how my brain works. <laughs> it's true. Yes, yes. The other show that I'm watching right now is Lego Masters, which is a competition show hosted by Will Arnett, where uh, pairs of people do competitions around building with Legos, uh, which is not quite as um, soothing as British Baking Show or Making It. It's like more overly produced, I would say, but they're building with Legos and it is really fun to see what people can do with Legos. Wow. And Will Arnett and Amy Poehler. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. Takes mm-hmm. me back. Um, 
that was the oh i told you i'm also watching bachelor in paradise oh yes mm-hmm. it's the best show of the bachelor franchise and it was gone last year because of covid and so so excited that it's back why is it the best i would like to hear this because, like, Bachelor and Bachelorette are, like, kind of weird because, right, you have all of these people going after one person, which uh, it just – there's no way that mm-hmm. all of them are actually interested in those people. Whereas Bachelor in Paradise is more like a romantic version of musical chairs where <laughs> one week you have more men and they have the – like, they can give roses to women. And then uh, the next week women have roses and there are more men and they are giving roses. So, like, you, your job is to be coupled up with a person at the end of the week and uh, to get a rose and so that you don't get kicked off. So you get more variety. Like there's a lot more people mm. to choose from. It's it's more likely that you will find people who like each other as opposed to here's the person that you are you have to like <laughs> or you're uh-huh. or you're gone. And it's also just like you dump people on a beach and they hang out, which I've been told <laughs> I need to watch Love Island because it's like this, but a lo- it's like 50 episodes a season. <laughs> but I feel like that might be. I, I think it would be harder for me to justify that use of my time because <laughs> Bachelor in Paradise is far. like. Like three weeks or five. No, it's like five weeks or something. But it's a very short uh, series. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a good uh, waste of time kind of pandemic show. Oh, even gosh. even non-pandemic, honestly. like It's so it's so good. <laughs> Do you remember <laughs> on Parks and Rec, speaking of Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, uh, when T- Tinnifer was on <laughs> and yes. April says, like, she's the worst person I've ever met. I want to travel <laughs> the world with her. Yes. There was a woman on Bachelor in Paradise named Victoria – who was apparently on the last season of Bachelor, which I did not watch. And she's she's Tinnifer. And I was so <laughs> excited. Every time she talked, I was like, this is amazing. She's horrible. <laughs> oh, that sounds so good. So there's a there's a TV digression for everyone. Yeah. Okay. And now speaking of not that, uh, our first sponsor is Lanternfish Press and Clock Star Rose Spine by Fran Wilde. Award-winning fantasy author Fran Wilde returns to her roots in Clock Star Rose Spine, which brings together poems previously published in Uncanny Magazine, Fireside Magazine, and more with a selection of work never before published. So that's exciting. In this collection, illuminated with whimsical fountain pen illustrations, that's a phrase I very much like, Wilde explores family histories, feminism, visual art, disability, mythology, and of course, the sea with tangible yearning and keen insight. Uh, this is the first collection of poetry by Wilde, who has won uh, the Nebula Award twice. And it has full color interiors showcasing those fountain pen illustrations. And it's just, it's it sounds really beautiful. And this is exciting. So thank you for sponsoring. Again, that is Lanternfish Press's Clockstar Rose Spine by Fran Wilde. That does sound quite lovely. Excellent. All right. So with that, we're going to jump into nonfiction in the news. Uh, I only have one article this week, but it is uh, a big one, I think, in terms of things Alice and I love to talk about. Uh, It is by Rachel Lerman from the Washington Post, and it is all about how Theranos' Elizabeth Holmes is about to go on trial which I feels like the Theran- we've been talking about Theranos for a super long time and the trial kept getting postponed and delayed mm-hmm. and now it is finally happening. Jury selection starts August 31st in San Jose and I believe it says the trial will start in 
heads to trial on September 8th. And so Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes, who's the founder of Theranos, is charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and 10 counts of wire fraud. And they're based on charges that she misled investors and patients about the capability of her technology in order to defraud them. So yeah, Theranos trial, it's starting. Do you know what uh, Elizabeth Holmes and her whole situation remind me of is like books that come out about like like fantastical trials of the 1890s and like oh mm, like this was mm-hmm. a a lady swindler of the time and like you know <laughs> that you didn't hear about because it's a hundred years later and I feel like we're going to get that kind of story in a hundred yeah. years about Elizabeth Holmes where it's just like this huckster slash charlatan traveling saleswoman Elizabeth Holmes and her uh, miracle tester cure mm-hmm. yeah 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 yeah, and I think too, like particularly because it's like Silicon Valley and medic medicine, and a lot of the like high-profile investors that she had. Like her gender is a big part of the story, um, and so yeah, I think you're totally right that like part of what's so fascinating about it is she's kind of an outlier in both being sort of a tech medical mogul and then also being charged before these crimes. So the Washington Post article has a really good just like breakdown of everything that's kind of happened. It tells you like who is Elizabeth Holmes and what's going on and what could happen and how is she going to defend herself. So uh, it's a good article like kind of overseeing the whole case. But I'm uh, I'm real fascinated as the trial progresses. Uh, anything else you want to add? Nope. <laughs> Okay. All right. And so uh, with that, we're going to just jump straight into new nonfiction, which is what's coming out this week or within the last couple of weeks that we are excited about and want to share with you. So um, my first pick is a memoir that I feel like has been on my radar for a super long time. uh, And it's Seeing Ghosts, a memoir by Kat Chow. I came out uh, August 24th from Grand Central Publishing. And the reason that I have like been waiting kind of on this memoir is that Kat Chow uh, was a member of NPR's Code Switch team. So she was a co-host of that podcast, which I used to listen to really regularly. And she was also a guest on Pop Culture Happy Hour, which is my other favorite NPR podcast. And she left um, NPR a while ago to work on this memoir. And so I've been sort of just waiting and waiting to hear it because she was such an interesting person on those various podcasts. So this book is about her mother and her mother's death and impact that that had on her. So in the memoir, she talks about how she's sort of always been fixated on death and has always worried even as a kid about her parents passing away especially her mom um and there's this like morbid joke that her mom made that when catch was really little that when her mom passed away she wanted to be stuffed and displayed in her apartment so that she could always watch over her and like it's a weird morbid joke but she tells it in such a way that like you understand that like this is just like part of her mom's weird personality and also like part of the way that their family like dynamic worked and so it's just it's a really fascinating memoir so her mother passes away unexpectedly from cancer and so it's about what happens to Kat and her sisters and their dad after this sort of vivacious and central presence and their lives just disappears. And it's also got some threads about um, her extended family immigrating to the United States from China and kind of finding their way here and what her parents' experiences were as immigrants in the United States and then having their daughters and um, how you kind of how she is sort of uncovering her family's stories as she's trying to understand her mother and get to know her family better after she passes away. So uh, it's just... It's a really beautiful memoir. She's such a good writer. She really has a gift for like very specific details that then she sort of is able to 
explain in a way that sort of feels universal in some ways, I guess. And so it's like very specific to her family's experience, but also you feel like you're learning and she's got some kind of more profound observations about grief and family and that kind of stuff mixed in with this very specific and really well told story about her family. Um, And she kind of jumps around in time as she's telling it, which is can be really tricky to do, but she's done a really nice job of like grounding the story all those times. So uh, I really like this one. It's very, very beautifully done. That is Seeing Ghosts, a memoir by Kat Chow. I feel like that was like a like a buzz book. Yeah, I, f- it, I feel like it has been a buzz book. Yeah. So, yeah, good idea. Highlighting. <laughs> uh, I have a nerd book for yes. anyone who really wants to kind of get into the history of the Black Death, but specifically the doctor response to it. So we're just diving in here. So this is Doctoring the Black Death, Medieval Europe's Medical Response to Plague by John Aberth uh, out September 1st. So John Aberth has written a series of books about uh, like plague and disease in the Middle Ages. And um, he has previously written Plagues in World History, uh, The Black Death, um, From the Brink of the Apocalypse, and The First Horseman which is disease in human history. Like there's like, and uh, among others, like there's he's done a lot of these. So um, it has a lot of knowledge coming into it already. If you are unaware, the Black Death was in the late Middle Ages. It's more than 50 million people by, uh, I think, believe many estimates, which was half of Europe's population. I think I've also heard a third, but uh, it's up to half died during the first outbreak, which was 1347 to 1353. And this affected the globe which was one of the reasons people at the time were like this is not like anything we've really seen because you usually would either have it affecting a specific population or like type of like you know you'd be like oh this island you know people are like dying Mm -hmm. there but this was like you could chart it coming like you know it would like land at this port and then it would go to another place and then and so people were dying so quickly of it it was just really marked so plague returned 15 more times until about 1500. And uh, so he's posing the greatest challenge to physicians ever recorded in the history of the medical profession. Because, you know, what did you do if someone got plague? Mm-hmm. Not to bum everyone out. But anyway. <laughs> anyway. So what John Aberth is doing here is he looked at hundreds, if not thousands, of medical treatises written during this time, which he said a lot of them were interesting because the people writing them didn't want to make their own statements like be like i think this it was very like oh well this leading doctor from like the past you know says this about Mm -hmm. you know what this probably is and so i'm going to just and like kind of just like transposing other people's work but he did find um at least a couple hundred where people were saying this is my idea about what's going on and uh even in the books where or treatises where people are talking about these are other people's ideas they will tell like first person stories of their treatment of the Black Death. Um, so he writes about that. And then he is also trying to dispel these like myths and misconceptions about medicine during the Middle Ages and talks about how doctors came up with this thing called um, the poison theory, where they decided to treat plague as a poison, which uh, he says had implications that kind of, uh, in some ways, still, still you know reverberate with us today. So it is, it is definitely nerdy. It is definitely for a a specific audience, but if that sounds, like, interesting to you, then I am delighted to highlight it. So, again, that is Doctoring the Black Death, Medieval Europe's Medical Response to Plague by John Aberth. 
That sounds interesting and also not for me, but I appreciate your recommendation. <laughs> well, I was excited to see it on the list. I think I, there are definitely people who that will be very exciting for them. So it was a good recommendation. I'm glad you talked about it. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> My second pick is different. Uh, it is called Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire by Lizzie Johnson, uh, which came out August 17th from Crown. And this is sort of the first and definitive account of California's campfire, which was the nation's deadliest wildfire in a century that um, started on November 8th, 2018 in California. So Lizzie Johnson was a um, reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle at the time, and so she was on the ground at the time of the campfire and after um, reporting on what happened to people there, what happened, how the fire started and all of that. So she brings like all of that reporting to this book. So the campfire basically started when there was an issue with an electrical line. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, it was wildfire season. And so the fire started super quickly. And within just a couple of hours of starting, it spread so quickly and so fast that the residents of Paradise, California were essentially like their town was just engulfed and flamed within hours. People were trapped in their homes, in their cars. And uh, eventually, once the fire like moved on, 85 people had been killed by this. So she, um, Lizzie Johnson was there. She came into the town after it was safe to do so and just interviews tons and tons of people who survived the fire and what happened to them. And so she, in this book, is giving a sort of comprehensive account of everything that happened in the days and days before and after. And it is it is fascinating. She it reminds me a lot of um, Five Days at Memorial by Sherry Fink, which is a book that came out several years ago that was sort of a definitive account of what happened at one hospital after Hurricane Katrina. And this book has the same like day by day, very minute detail kind of feel where she's profiling and giving you these background stories of a ton of different people who are affected by the fire, like a captain who is leading a brigade of firefighters, a 911 operator, um, a woman who had a baby and had to be evacuated from a hospital, a bus driver who ends up having a bunch of kids on a bus that he's trying to help evacuate from the fire area. And just really like so much detail about what happened and really like puts you in in the story of this. And it's so, it's so good. It's so good. Um, the reporting is just like spot on. You know that she has like spent a ton of time talking to people and really understanding their stories and really trying to like make you feel for them and understand what their experience was like in this natural disaster and looks into the causes and tries to understand like who is responsible for this. Like who do we really need to like hold, who do we really need to hold accountable for letting this wildfire start and then get so out of control? And a lot of it has to do with, like, the failing electric infrastructure by a system called Pacific Gas and Electric. And so it's just really good. It is empathetic and thoughtful and also really, like, holding someone accountable for a disaster that didn't necessarily need to happen. So that is Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire by Lizzie Johnson. Oh, that sounds very relevant. It is, yes. Also that, too, like... At so many fires, like understanding this one, I think, yeah, totally. Well, and the infrastructure thing reminds me of, you know, when we had like the breakdown in Texas mm-hmm. um, of the grid mm-hmm. and then, you know, it's like this one company basically doing a bad job and the infrastructure is not well done or not there. Mm-hmm. So, but like, obviously this is a, a slightly different instance yeah, it's, it's of it. Yeah, different, but, but yeah. The same overall problem. 
Um, mm-hmm. that's fun. Sorry to be a bummer, everyone. Let's talk about <laughs> the Chinese question, the gold rushes and global politics by May Nye. I promise we'll talk about some up stuff. However, first, let's, <laughs> I know, it's out August 24th from W.W. Norton. May Nye is Lung Family Professor of Asian American Studies and Professor of History at Columbia University. And in this book, she talks about the, during the five decades, which was mainly between 1848 to 1899, uh, when we had these gold rushes. And it says more gold was removed from the earth than had been mined in the 3,000 preceding years within those 50 years. I That like wow. blows my mind. Yeah. But basically, because all of this gold mining was happening in the United States, uh, and I believe at the time Yukon Territory, all of these people came to the United States, which makes sense. So, but uh, there was a lot of Chinese immigration during this time, because a lot of the gold mining was done on the West Coast. So what ended up happening was because there was all this friction between uh, Chinese and white settlers in California, but also in Australia and South Africa. So then there was this thing called the Chinese question, which was would the United States and the British Empire outlaw Chinese immigration? So what Nye is doing in this book is looking at the communities built by the Chinese settlers who came to these areas, what the racist sort of like sentiment was towards them, what laws came about as a result of this that stick with us, which like, oh my gosh. So something that I I learned, like, I would say in the last few years, um, because I was looking more into, you know, like American women's suffrage. Um, so there was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which banned all immigration of Chinese laborers to the United States, like just banned which alone is like okay that's horrible so then after that in 1943 there was the chinese exclusion repeal act so it's like okay cool we can have immigration again but even with that 1943 right not that long ago there was still a ban against the ownership of property and businesses by people who are ethnically chinese and then in many states uh chinese americans even if they were u.s citizens were denied property ownership rights. And this was until 1965, when, like, this was finally, like, fully repealed. I just, that just blows my mind. So basically Mm -hmm. what this book is doing is setting the kind of background for these laws that carried forward for, you know, minimum of, like, 70 years, which just, like, uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So if you are interested, again, in, um, I would say... These things that that happened at this point, you know, we're like 140 years about since at least since the Exclusion Act happened and that then are still echoing with us. Like we still kind of have some things remaining from that and definitely in our pop culture and just sort of like why those came into being, what was going on, how these communities were built and like sort of, you know, how they were able to support each other throughout this extreme crappiness. Then uh, check this out. So it is The Chinese Question, The Gold Rushes and Global Politics by May Nye. That sounds super interesting. And yeah, in- interesting to have sort of background and context for a lot of things that come after. It's what history is good for, right? Like, yeah, giving you context. Excellent pick. That's why it's good. All right. So with that, uh, our second sponsor for this week is TBR, Book Riot subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. So do you want great new nonfiction books to read, but you feel overwhelmed by all of the publishing buzz? Then let us help. 
tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for, then sit back while a bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR has plans where you can receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for any budget. TBR is also available as a gift. Sign up takes only a few minutes. You answer some questions about what you like to read, what you're looking for. You can link up your Goodreads profile, and then you're done. And subscribers are matched to bibliologists based on requests, so you'll get information from somebody who's really familiar with that service. Each TBR delivery contains three titles, either a hardcover or a recommendation, and you'll receive a new shipment every three months. You can give your bibliologist feedback, update your requests, and uh, explore new genres and horizons with that. So visit my TBR co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. All right. So this week's weekly theme is a little bit more, I don't know what the word is. It's a little more casual, I suppose, than some of the other ones we've done. We decided uh, last episode, we talked a lot about how Alice went to the library and wandered around and it felt good and normal and fun to do some library exploration. So we thought we would do that for this week's episode. So we both went to a library and wandered around and picked some books and we're going to talk about them. Alice, tell me a little bit about what it was like to wander the library, because I feel like part the experience is part of part of this. It is. Um, so my branch library is, because I'm in Chicago, and we have like a bunch of them, mm-hmm. and they vary in quality. Mine mine is, <laughs> is pretty small, but mm-hmm. in some ways that makes it manageable, right? Because you're not, like the, the downtown branch is like eight floors of books, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess like five floors, but you know, it's a lot. And this is just sort of like, here are all the books. <laughs> you can just look, go through them real, like, relatively quickly. So I gave myself a time limit, which I think was half an hour to 45 minutes, somewhere in there. And I, mm-hmm. I looked at almost all of the nonfiction. And it was so cool because you just see all these books that you're just like, I had, like, you know, it's a backlist from like 40 years mm-hmm. ago. So it's not being really talked about anymore. And but there, uh, it uh, presumably has been checked out enough to keep it within the the collection yeah. of the library. So yeah, it was it was really neat and just exposed me to a lot of things that I would not otherwise have run across. Yeah, I felt similarly. I went. I didn't go to my local library. I went to the library down by my boyfriend's house, which uh, is a little bit bigger, but not a ton. But it is a library that I've never just wandered before. And it was, I forgot how much fun it is to do that, like to just go to the sections that you're kind of familiar with and just wander and sort of see the titles on the shelves and pull stuff off and look at it and decide like, maybe this is fun. I don't know. And then bring it home. So like, I only plan to grab, I think like three books because that was what we were going to talk about. And I ended up grabbing like seven. (laughs) And it just was really, it was really satisfying. I forgot how nice it is to just kind of wander and see titles and see ones that you like recognize and be like, oh, I forgot about that or stuff that's totally new that you didn't know about. And yeah, highly recommend it if you feel comfortable and your libraries are open to just go in and wander a little bit because there's some cool stuff you can find. Well, and you satisfy that like shopping urge without yeah. without spending money. <laughs> yes, exactly, which is important. So my first random library find is Future Face, A Family Mystery, An Epic Quest, and The Secret of Belonging by Alex Wagner. Uh, And I think this is one where I recognized the title, but I didn't remember what it was about. And when I picked it up and I saw the subtitle, I was like, ah, yes, here, these are all things that I love. So uh, Alex Wagner is a journalist, and this book is about her um, kind of quest to solve the mystery of her ancestry. So she is the daughter of a Burmese mother and a white American father, and so she grew up 
the title of the book, Future Face, is kind of how she grew up seeing herself. There was this, like, I think Time magazine article back when she was a kid that was talking basically, like, about the future of the United States is not white. And it had this sort of, like, computer-generated mixed-race person on the front. And she was like, oh, yeah, there, that's me. That's who I am. And so that was kind of her idea of herself for a long time. And then as she started, as she grew up and she started investigating and like learning more of her family's stories and like exploring the world of ancestry and all of that, she starts out on this kind of quest to really understand herself. And she finds some surprising things in her family's history. She discovers that she has some Jewish relatives that she didn't know about and a bunch of other different things that she just has a lot more a lot more stories in her background than she really realized. And so the book is about the history of her family, uh, genetic science, and what that can teach us about our own histories, sociology, and just like trying to understand her own story and then how she, as a mixed-race person who has so many other different stories and other people in her, her history, how she fits into kind of the United States and what we are talking about. Um, and so I think this book came out in like 2017-ish. And so like, I think in the context of that time, so it's still really interesting now as we're trying to grapple with what it means to like have a country that is increasingly not white and the people are not just one thing anymore. Like we have a lot of mixed race families um, and what that means for how we all see each other. So I, it's really fascinating. I really like this one. So Future Face, A Family Mystery, An Epic Quest, and The Secret of Belonging by Alex Wagner. Oh, that's fun. Um, yeah. That seems different than the ones that I picked. So that's also exciting. <laughs> I don't think anyone's surprised. Um, so my first pick is it's very different than my other two. And I got it because I've been listening to the BBC History Extra podcast like all the time and they interview people every episode about like they're it's just all authors they talk to about their books but they're always like historians of some kind and this is Chanel's Riviera Glamour Decadence and Survival in Peace and War 1930 to 1944 by Anne de Courcy this came out last year and Anne de Courcy is fascinating <laughs> in and of herself. <laughs> so she was like a, an editor and journalist in the 70s and 80s. She is now 94. Wow. And yeah, and wrote this book, like really sharp. Um, I'm kind of amazed. She's one of those like, uh, so mostly people they interview are, are British of some kind, like English mostly. And uh, she, you know, married someone of a, of a landed gentry family <laughs> in, <laughs> in Huddersfield. Um, I don't know where that is. But anyway, yeah, so she's written a lot of biographies. And in this one, she really wanted to focus on what was going on in the Riviera um, pre and then like during the war. So this is, uh, she says, a uh, time of the deepest extremes of luxury and terror in the 20th century. Um, like the Cote d'Azur in the Riviera was, um, you had all of these people like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, uh, like Wallace Simpson, you know, and Edward the mm -hmm, whatever, mm -hmm, it's like mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. seventh, I think. And then uh, Joseph Kennedy, Gloria Swanson, the movie star, um, Colette, the author, and then, you know, the Midfords who... I don't like. But anyway, <laughs> all of these people who were like a big deal of the 1930s were just all at the Riviera where they would be like gambling and swimming and just, you know, trying to like escape from it all. And she says in the book, she's talking about how they kind of were ignoring what was going on mm. in Europe. 
Like, it was sort of like, no, I'm going to the Riviera. We're just going to have a good time. And, you know, because it's this thing of, of if you have the privilege to do that, then sure. But then, you know, France surrenders to the Germans. And so then, you know, like, what happens? And you have to try to evacuate. And she also talks about, um, you know, there's a lot of things about, like, Coco Chanel was a Nazi or at least a Nazi collaborator. And so she addresses that and kind of what the the biographical background was there and what evidence there is. And there's just a lot going on. And it also has enough, I'm going to say, sparkle <laughs> to make mm-hmm. it like really interesting. Because you don't only have, you know, the the extreme stress of war with like World War II, but you also have this, again, like kind of like star-studded locale mm-hmm. for everything. Um, so again, that is Chanel's Riviera, Glamour, Decadence, and Survival in Peace and War by Anne de Courcy. That sounds really good. I think that's one of the, like, history themes that I like is, like, rich people doing rich people things just because it's, like, so absurd (laughs) that it's, like, super escapist to just read about, like, rich people being kind of jerks to each other, but then also, like, getting to do all this fun stuff, like, swim in the Mediterranean and whatever. Mm -hmm. That always feels like a good kind of escapist history is that kind of stuff. Oh, for sure. So, that yeah, that sounds like a fun pick. My second pick is Brave Not Perfect, Fear Less, Fail More, and Live Bolder by Rishama Sujani. And uh, I, this is another one that I like vaguely recognized the title and then I picked it up and I was like, ah, yes, a book about how to stop being a perfectionist. I feel like this is the thing I need to read right now. So the author is the founder of Girls Who Code, but she, before that, um, she kind of found her way into this idea of like writing about bravery versus perfectionism and fear because she um, ran for political office in New York City against a very uh, entrenched uh, incumbent. And she lost spectacularly and then started to sort of speak about that experience of a failure. And then it sort of led her down a path of exploring exploring these ideas that girls are raised thinking they need to be perfect, where boys are raised being praised for being brave. And so what does that mean for girls and then for young adults and then for women as we put ourselves in situations where we're always trying to be perfect instead of situations where we should be brave instead? And so it just like... And then she kind of spins that out, right? So, like, teachers praise girls for being quiet and polite and respectful and compliant, whereas boys are praised for being rowdy and trying new things and are given sort of more opportunities to, like, hurt themselves, whereas girls, when they put themselves in, like, physically risky situations, it's always like, are you going to be okay? Are you that kind of, like, attitude and just, like, how ingrained that is in the way that we treat young boys and young girls. And so it's about how, like, why that is happening and how we can try to push back against it and how we can try to choose bravery over perfection and to leave behind the things that make us unhappy and trying to find the things that we passionately want. And I feel like a book that like this week, just for personal reasons, I really like needed to be reading like a book that's like, stop worrying about being perfect and really just like think about being brave and think about what you want. And here are some ways that you can do that. So the first part that I've gotten through is about her kind of setting the stage and exploring why it is girls and women act this way and why girls and women are trained to act this way. And then the next part really is some more practical stuff about how to be more brave and less perfect, which I think I am. I, I, need, to, I need to read this one. So Brave Not Perfect, Fear Less, Fail More, and Live Bolder by Rishama Sujani. I think I talked about this like a while ago. I think maybe, yeah. And I, so I, re- I love the first half of it. I'm not as big a fan of the second half, mm. but I thought like I highlighted or underlined or whatever, just like so many things in the first half. And yeah. she does really get so much into how girls are sort of taught that 
in order to be good, you have to not make mistakes. Yeah. And that boys are given this freedom to do this and uh, to just, like, you know, take chances. And mm-hmm. it's and girls are kind of, like, you know, kept safe and all this kind of stuff. So it was really helpful from that aspect. I actually uh, – I have a friend who he manages a number of women and he's previously kind of indicated that, like, oh, I don't understand why they get so upset about, you know, not in, like, a complaining way, but just, like, a confused way. Like, they make mm-hmm. a mistake and they get really upset. And I told him about this book and he picked it up and started reading it and said that it was really helpful. Oh, that's a good endorsement. Yeah. Well, just to, you know, like, get into, like, this is why, like, this reaction might be happening and, like, this is the background. And because if you if you aren't raised that way, you're not going to understand those yeah. feelings. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, I really – I do really like that one. Good, good, good pick, Kim, and your word. Thank you. Uh, my next one is Crazy Brave, a memoir by Joy Harjo. So Joy Harjo is uh, an American poet, musician, playwright, author. I hadn't read anything of hers before because I don't do poetry that much. And mm-hmm. she's the incumbent U.S. Poet Laureate and the first Native American to uh, hold that honor, according to Wikipedia. Um, Because this, obviously, this book came out in like 2012, I believe. So that info was not in her bio. But um, she's a member of the Muscogee Nation. And her memoir, which I believe she's like 70 now. So she's in her 60s when she wrote this. And she mixes this up with uh, tribal myth and ancestry and music and poetry. Because she's also she's a musician. And talks about her journey to becoming a poet from like she was born in Oklahoma. Normally, I am not as into, um, I don't even know how to describe it, like spiritual, mystic non-fiction mm-hmm. like she talks about at the very beginning she's discussing like before she was born and like you know this like guide like like soul guide like bringing her into the world like with this mm-hmm. message for like her life and i could see like maybe my past self being a little more eye-rolly about that but like <laughs> joy harjo is such a good writer that i was like i buy into this you know what i mean like it was like mm-hmm. okay i'm like i'm with you like let's see where you're going with this and talks about like her parents relationship Again, using, like, very poetic language and then, like, her relationship with her stepfather, which, by the way, like, there's a trigger warning for um, alcoholism in this. But it's, again, it's very short, but also just very, um, I hate to overuse the word evocative, but I'm going to. Because it's like when you have a nonfiction memoir by a poet, it's kind of inevitably going to be described as evocative. But it's just, it's really good and she's very grounded in like the Muscogee Nation and talking about uh, her Creek family. And it was just uh, something that I would not have just normally picked up, you know? So that's Mm -hmm. why I I was just so happy to do this as like an exercise because I was like, oh, wow, this is, uh, I saw it on the shelf as a short book. And then it turned Mm -hmm. out to be something like completely out of my normal wheelhouse, but that was still really good. So again, that is Crazy Brave, a memoir by Joy Harjo. That sounds really great, and it's an excellent pick because she has a follow-up memoir coming out on September 7th. Uh, So you're, like, right ahead of the the curve on that one. Uh, The book is called Poet Warrior, a memoir, and it is described as a follow-up that reveals how Harjo came to write poetry of compassion and healing, poetry with the power to unearth the truth and demand justice. So if you finish this one, there'll be another one in just just a couple weeks. Oh my gosh, this is like waiting to read the uh, sequel to it. Well, in like a normal like fiction book when then you just read the first one right beforehand so that you yeah. know everything that happened. <laughs> yes, I think that could be a very like interesting and satisfying kind of experience. So um, yeah, very good pick. 
All right, so my last pick is uh, a book that I had never heard of and uh, is really fun. So it's called Wildlife, Dispatches from a Childhood of Baboons and Button Downs by Keena Roberts. And uh, the reason I grabbed this one off the shelf is because I was like looking at it and skimming it and it, it's described, it's, it's like real life mean girls. And I was like, yeah, cool. This sounds really fun. So Keena Roberts grew up in a um, wildlife camp in Botswana with her parents who were researchers. And then when she is a young girl, her parents move back to Philadelphia and she starts going to an elite private school. And she is completely a fish out of water in this experience because she grew up just completely differently. And so the opening like scene of the story is she is in school and she's in gym class, I think, and they have been given an assignment to do like a dance with a partner and all of the other girls in this gym class get up and do these like ballerina kind of dances or whatever and she has forced her partner to do a dance to this song called gorilla man and they have this very elaborate dance where she is like the one girl is playing a gorilla and kina is like the hunter who's trying to find them and it is just completely out of step with all of the other girls in her class and her partner is like very distressed at having done this because she's so embarrassed and like it just sets this really funny stage of like being a complete fish out of water in this elite Philadelphia school with all of these girls that like she doesn't understand and doesn't know how to interact with. And so it is about that, about what it is like being a person growing up in Africa in nature with the researchers and the lions and elephants and monkeys and all of these animals that were close by with her family because they kind of lived in this very remote area where they were studying wildlife. And then um, because her parents are primatologists and then like what it is like also then coming to live in Philadelphia and be in the United States and trying to like acclimate to both of those places because as a kid they kind of went back and forth very frequently so they would spend part of the year in Botswana and part of the year in Philadelphia. I was absolutely sold on the idea of real life mean girls. I was like I 100% want to read that book. That is why I picked it up Uh, and it's really fun. It's just a good like it's just it's a really well done version of like this kind of a story and I think it's it's just fun to read and she's a good evocative writer and not afraid of like pointing out some of her like most embarrassing moments which is a really important thing in a memoir like you have to be willing to be vulnerable like that so uh, it's really fun wildlife dispatches from a childhood of baboons and button downs by kina roberts speaking of primatology so i read ape house by sarah gruen and i i literally i'd owned it for like 10 years and (laughs) i'm i'm trying to get some books off my shelf right so i was like i'm gonna read it i put it in the little free library near my home where books get turned over so fast it sat there for wow. so long. I was like, why do people hate Ape House? <laughs> like, because yeah, everyone was so weird. hyped for Water for Elephants, but yeah. uh, mm-hmm. apparently not as much for apes. Wow. Huh. Anyway, you know. that sounds really good and funny. Well, you know, particularly the, the classroom thing. But mm-hmm. anyway, okay. My last pick is The Ways of My Grandmothers by Beverly Hungry Wolf. This came out in 1998, which I persist in thinking of as 10 years ago. Despite the fact that I know at this point, oh my gosh, like there are contestants on Bachelor in Paradise who were born after 1998. And I just like, I know that it's like an old person to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're born. But like, I'm old now. So I get to do that. It's true. It's true. (laughs) I've decided to just lean into it. Be like, yeah, yeah, I am old. Do you have anything else to say? (laughs) Um, oh yeah i've had my time in the sun so uh this book is uh a i thought it was interesting the way okay so beverly hungry wolf she approaches this story of sort of like the women of the blackfoot indians 
uh, also known as Blackfeet. There's uh, both options, apparently. She talks about her own story and also the story of the women around her. And she's very like, you know, this is not – I am not speaking for everyone. This is, you know, my experience. And, you know, I don't want to be like a spokesperson, <laughs> like in general, which – I feel like in 1998, maybe this is me getting things wrong, but I feel like that was kind of like a a different tack mm-hmm. to take. You know what I mean? Like, feel mm-hmm. like I'm not a representative for everyone. But in this, so it's like personal and tribal history. She tells legends and myths and like this wisdom passed down through generations of women. And this is just a book I had never heard of. Like, at least like I'd, I'd heard of Joy Harjo, right? Because mm-hmm. I feel like she's everywhere. But I'd never heard of this book. And it was so cool to like just run across it on the shelf. It talks about the lives of Blackfeet women now, but also in the past, and their role in Blackfeet society. But then she talks about, like, as of, you know, when when you say modern, like, as of 1998, <laughs> um, her experiences in in that society, and then these, like, firsthand accounts of older women uh, talking about, like, the past as they remember it. And just, like, there's just a lot of different elements to it as she's trying to sort of chronicle and, like, keep these stories going. And I just, mm-hmm. I really loved that. So, again, that is The Ways of My Grandmothers by Beverly Hungry Wolf. That sounds really good. And, yeah, that's the kind of book that, like, without just wandering a library, you probably wouldn't find it. Or you'd have to be, like, searching specifically for something like that. So yeah. one of the, like, joys of library browsing is that. You can find older books that have stood the test of time in some ways, but that maybe aren't particularly well-known. All right. So with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading right now at this very moment. Um, I'm in the middle of, like, so many nonfiction books right now that I just really, like, hope this weekend I can buckle down and, like, finish. And they're all books that I've talked about before. So the book I'm going to mention for this is the audiobook that I have right now, which is The Box in the Woods by Maureen Johnson, which is a young adult mystery. It's part of the Truly Devious series. So there was a trilogy. And then this is kind of book four that takes place, obviously, after that trilogy. Um, It's about a high school student named Stevie Bell. Truly Devious, the first trilogy of books, is about her trying to solve a mystery at a private school at Ellingham Academy, this cold case. Um, And then in this book, she gets uh, invited to come to a camp to try and solve a cold case from the 1970s with a guy who's kind of a, like, tech mogul-y sort of thing and wants to make a podcast about this cold case about some murders at a summer camp. And so she gets kind of drawn into that, trying to help. And I I love, like, mystery, yeah, YA mysteries on audiobooks. So this is just really my jam. The Box in the Woods by Maureen Johnson. Oh, that's fun. You know what series uh, my wife is, like, obsessed with is the Sarah J. Moss of, oh. like, fairy romance mm, book. Mm-hmm, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? I do, yep. I don't remember the name of it. I don't remember the name either, but I know what you're talking about. They're very popular right now. Um, they are. She just literally got six of them in as holes at the library. <laughs> God. And I was like, why? They're so long. Why are they so, so long? Yeah, they're giant books. And I was like, why did you get six? And she was like, well, I put them all on hold so that I thought they would trickle in. And I was like, what if they came no. in out of order? What are you doing? <laughs> This is chaos. This is chaos. It seems to have worked out for her. She said she's already started (laughs) reading them. So anyway, um, my current read, uh, which I also just picked up at the library this morning, is uh, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Kristen Kobes-Dumay. I believe I talked about it on the podcast, but I was only able to read part of like my my galley and I'm excited to have a hard copy because sometimes it's just nice to read a hard copy. 
So um, I'm psyched about that because it talks about masculinity in uh, white evangelicalism and how um, the image of Jesus has kind of been changed. And also, Kobes Jume was her work was just referenced in another book that's kind of uh, being talked about a lot in evangelical circles called The Making of Biblical Womanhood, uh, where mm-hmm. she's sort of Beth Allison Barr is talking about the creation of this idea that, you know, women are supposed to kind of have these separate roles from men and how that's not based in the Bible, according to her research. And it was created in like the 20th century. So it was very interesting. Mm. And I'm excited to learn more. Okay. So with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a minute, we would love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then you can follow us there so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, With that, I am Kim Ukara. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. (laughs) 